We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hello there, folks. 808, Esme Murphy along with Shaletta Brundage. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Lowe, logging his couple of hours, is on his way out. Thank you, Mr. Jonathan helping us out last week as well in more ways than anybody could ever imagine. Um, also, uh, shout out to our producer, David Josephson, in case I do not get that in uh, at the end of the show. All right. It's been a while. I am so happy to be talking to one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz, because there is so much to talk about. Uh, David Schultz, how are you? I am doing very well. And you tonight? There's so much to talk about. Yes, there is. It goes anywhere from the Supreme Court to Supreme Court to lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. All right. Listen, you know, I think a lot of people may not realize, and I try and say it um, often, is that obviously, you know, your political analysis is so great. The blog, Schultz's take. You also are a constitutional law professor. So, so you understand the, the mechanisms and the machinations of the Supreme Court. How big a deal is this retirement by Justice Anthony Kennedy? This is probably the biggest story of of the year, and if I'm thinking in terms of a story affecting the Supreme Court, probably the biggest story affecting the Supreme Court, I'm going to say, in 25 or 30 years at oh. least. Um, so it's it's enormous. And let me sort of do the shorthand version, and then we can expand it. The shorthand version is to say that we have a Supreme Court that is more or less split 4-1-4. And what I mean is we have four conservatives, four liberals, and most of the time they vote pretty consistently as a block. That leaves one justice in the middle, Anthony Kennedy, appointed by Ronald Reagan, more likely to vote conservative than, than, than liberal, but there are many situations where, where he's voted, voted let's say, with, with, with the liberals on there. He is the swing vote. Um, he is, he, and it, it's been Justice Kennedy's court for 30 years since he got on. Replacing him, um, what Trump has the opportunity to do now with somebody who's, who's probably going to be much more conservative than him, really cements the Supreme Court as a solidly conservative court, or even more solidly conservative than it is now for probably the next generation. Right. And, and that's what, that's what's so significant here is because, you know, critics of the president say, you know, well, maybe he can be voted out, you know, in 2020, but this will last for a generation. And, yes. and, and, and that is why there is so much at stake when we go to vote for president. Yes. And this is one of the issues that people talked about in 2016 about the control of the Supreme Court. And generally, people will acknowledge and say, yeah, that's important. But usually, um, the Supreme Court appointments don't factor in terms of the top two or three issues that move a lot of people. But nonetheless, in many ways, the real legacy for the president um, is not just the Supreme Court, but the lower federal court nominees, because it will be... Trump's opportunity to be able to not just fill in and move the Supreme Court with a second no- second nomination, 
but he's also in the process of filling courts of appeals, district courts, and that has a significant impact also. And again, we know that, that many judges and on the Supreme Court, many justices are around there for you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Right. And, and, you know, when you talk about Justice Kennedy, he was appointed, obviously, by a conservative president, Ronald Reagan. But he has joined the liberals on the court with key votes, gay marriage. There would be no gay marriage in this country were it not for Anthony Kennedy. Absolutely correct. And the two issues where Kennedy, I think, has has really carved his own path um, distinct from the rest of the conservatives has been on, let's say, LGBT issues, um, that it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that he has been the singularly the best justice um, on gay rights issues of any justice in the history of the Supreme Court. Um, even before we got to the Oberg case, which is the one that legalized same-sex marriage across the United States, he had penned all the major decisions um, regarding gay rights in the United States. So that's one area. The second is that when he was appointed to the bench um, and backed by Ronald Reagan, he was the person um, who got on the bench uh, when eventually um, the Robert Bork nomination failed. Conservatives were hoping that among the things that Kennedy would do would, be, would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade is the main case that um, guarantees under the Constitution a right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy. Instead, Kennedy has, in several opinions, affirmed Roe versus Wade, and the, the, the validity of Roe as a precedent really has hung um, on, on Anthony Kennedy as being the critical fifth vote to support um, abortion rights. All right. You know, it, one of the things that we have to go back to is what happened in 2016. Antonin Scalia died in February of 2016. Barack Obama was the president, and he was going to be the president for the next 11 months. Mm -hmm. And Republicans were successful in blocking that nomination. Uh, Mitch McConnell barely containing his glee, you know, posting on social media, you know, shaking hands with Neil Gorsuch. All of that move there, you know, and that effort, that successful effort by Republicans to block the Obama administration or the Obama um, nominee. Oh, Garland, right. Merrick Garland. I mean, that is just now stunning, really, for the implications because so many people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. That's right. That's right. And think about it. Had Obama been able to replace Scalia with Garland, now Garland's voting record on the Court of Appeals isn't um, super liberal. Li- it's not super liberal. Not super liberal. He would have been close to a Kennedy. Um, so that, let us say, um, Obama had gotten that nomination and, tr- and, and Trump had still won. Um, we would have had at least for a year or so up until now, we would have had a situation where the court would have been probably split three, four, let's say three, four, two. The liberals would have won more, with more cases. Um, we now would have had Kennedy step down. We'd be back to something that might be four, one, four. So, so we, it, it, so that that missed opportunity, um, coupled with now Kennedy stepping down, link these couple of things together here, really is is dramatically changing the complexion of the Supreme Court. In in terms of did Democrats. What did they do wrong? What did they miscalculate during those critical 11 months? During those critical 11 months, I mean, among the things 
um, that they couldn't do was 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 really obviously block it because um, or, or, or to force it through because you had the Republicans in majority. What Obama could have done was maybe do a recess appointment. You know, he could have tried to get somebody in temporarily. Um, maybe the Democrats could have really played super hardball at that point and said that on something that the Republicans really want, um, they were going to filibuster um, un- um, until there was a vote on the nomination. But I'm not sure any of that would have worked. I think truly um, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans understood that that Scalia dying was um, a, 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 a momentous point in the history of the Supreme Court, and they had to do something um, in terms of trying to affect um, ability to be able to control that appointment. Right. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk more about this and, and the implications. And, and just before this stunning announcement that Justice Kennedy was retiring, you also had two extraordinary decisions on uh, immigration and on unions that, that really illustrate how critical the United States Supreme Court is. Uh, so more with David Schultz after this. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 821 on a Saturday evening. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, we are talking about uh, the extraordinary developments with the United States Supreme Court, obviously the retirement or the announcement of the retirement by Anthony Kennedy that came really just within hours of the second sort of bombshell announcement from the Minnesota or from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the first ruling, I believe, happened on Monday, which upheld the president's travel ban. The second ruling uh, allowed government unions, uh, members of government unions to not have to pay union dues. Uh, these are the kinds of decisions, I think, that just illustrate how big a deal the Supreme Court is. It really is. You know, and, and let me ask you about the first one on the travel ban. Uh, was this expected? Yes, it was, actually, in the end. I mean, keep in mind also, but the case that eventually got to them was about the third version of the travel ban, and it's a little bit watered down from the initial one. But, yeah, it was it's really sort of expected at this point that the court would, uh, would, would uphold it. Um, generally, courts on the Supreme Court, in the, you know, in the last, I'm going to say, 100 years, I mean, it goes back a long time, generally cut enormous slack to presidents when it comes to foreign policy authority. And this is exactly what we saw here. What was being hoped is that they would be be willing to consider all of Trump's um, um, comments beyond his executive order, which referred to Muslims um, as as evidence of some type of discriminatory um, intent. But at the end of the day, they decided not to do that um, and instead viewed it um, simply as whether the president under under immigration law has the discretion to be able to institute a ban for national security purposes, and they said yes. So I was sort of expecting them to do to do that opinion along the way they did five four. Again, given the fact that there's just an incredible uh, number of precedents that really do give presidents lots of authority when it comes to foreign policy. Okay, and, and obviously that that's exactly what they said. The other big one that came out just hours before the announcement uh, by uh, Justice Kennedy that he would be retiring was the one that allows um, um, uh, 
members of public sector unions to not have to pay union dues. How, how big a blow is that to organized labor? It's big, and it's also a big blow to the Democratic Party. And let's put it in a longer historical perspective. If we go back to, let's say, approximately 1954, about 35 36% of the workforce in the United States was unionized. And the unions have always been a big source of money and a big source of get-out-the-vote for the Democratic Party. From that date, you know, in, you know, down to the present, we're now looking at only about six percent of the private wow. sector that's unionized. But public sector, we're still looking at a pretty significant percentage that that are unionized, and it's still the same thing. Unions provide overwhelmingly more votes, um, especially public sector unions, for the Democrats and resources for the Democrats. And so, one can really argue that that the fortunes of the Democratic Party have have really been tied to union density and the strength of labor unions in the United States. And that's true in Minnesota, because think of what? The DFL is what? Democratic farmer labor. So nationwide, losing that ability to automatically collect the dues from union members um, is going to be enormously um, a big blow for the Democratic Party nationwide. And also, I'm going to say, it's going to be a big impact, including in Minnesota, for the DFL. Now, one could make the argument and say that and, and, and that maybe unions have already um, passed in terms of their time, or maybe we could argue in terms of saying that, that the Democrats need to be thinking now beyond a, um, a, a union basis for their, for, their, um, for their party. And in some sense, that's probably true, because a lot of the rank-and-file um, unions, again, private sector, are either gone or they're voting, voting Republican. Public sector, though, they were still Democrat. So, yes, this is... This is um, politically, not just important to the unions, but dramatically important also um, to the Democratic Party. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, uh, what I was wondering is obviously th- this ruling specifically was about uh, public sector unions uh, f- for government jobs. Right. Will this have any kind of impact on uh, unions that represent you know, non-government workers? In other words, will there, could this ha- set some sort of legal precedent there? Given the fact that this was based on the First Amendment, no um, in terms of legal precedent there, but does it now put more pressure um, on, on private sector unions in terms of perhaps eroding their support? And the answer is yes. You know, be, um, and, and that's where I think there's kind of collateral damage there, is that the public sector unions in, in, um, um, really sort of were like the last bastion of trying to hold together, you know, the union movement in the United States. And one can argue that this is, this is getting to be one of the last sort of um, uh, major blows to unionization in the United States. What I would suspect you might see instead now um, is not how this precedent becomes important, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the Republicans in Congress along with the president, um, try to pass um, what would be called right-to-work law at the federal level, which would essentially mean that, that across the United States, um, all, um, no private sector unions could automatically collect um, in terms of, of union dues. And if that were to happen, um, then, then we would see probably whatever remains of the private sector unions wither away. Okay. But, but you think that that would actually require congressional legislation? That would require congressional legislation, correct. Because right now, this case has, has 
almost no precedential value or, or legal precedent in terms of how it affects the regulation of private sector unions. Again, what I'm seeing more likely at this point is that a Republican Congress and President revisit the National Labor Relations Act from the 1930s, as well as the Taft-Hartley Act from 1946, if I remember correctly, um, and, and change those rules in a way that, that doesn't benefit um, labor unions in the United States. Now, let's go back and just talk about something different also in terms of roads that could have gone in different ways. Back in 2008, um, the major unions supported Barack Obama with the hope that he would sign something and update, again, the National Labor Relations Act from the 1930s. Had the Democrats moved on that and Obama signed it, um, it is quite possible, not guaranteeing it, but possible that this decision that we saw this week would not have happened because, again, there was a lot of possibilities in terms of how, that, how that, those, those changes in law could have affected both private sector and perhaps public sector unions. All right. Chatting with Professor David Schultz, we do have to take a break. We want to give you some weather. Uh, when we come back, though, uh, want to talk to Professor David Schultz about this August 14th primary. We, we, we mentioned earlier that early voting has already started, but it is unprecedented. The, the kinds of things that are at stake at this August 14th primary, uh, a primary where traditionally the voter turnout has only been between 10 and 15 percentage points. So let's take a quick break. We're going to pay some bills. Uh, we'll give you some weather and then we'll have more with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's 8.34 in the Twin City. It's 83 degrees. Uh, talking with Professor David Schultz, you know, I, I got to ask you something here. Um, I, I really pride myself on trying to, to be up and with it and, and having everything all together and, and knowing all these races. It is mind boggling how much is going on right now in Minnesota politics and how much is at stake at, at this August 14th primary. Yeah, this has got to be one of the most consequential and crowded primaries that I can think of. You know, I, you know I've, been, I've been here for like, you know, over 30 years. I know you've been covering Minnesota politics for, you know, you know maybe merely that long also. Doesn't it seem like absolutely everything is at stake? We have, we have the um, um, wide-open governor's races. We have, you know, primaries, you know, for for at least you know at least one U.S. Senate seat, uh, we have the primaries for Attorney General. Um, we just have on the Democratic side, we just have an incredible amount going on, and it's coming with a primary uh, in August, which, as you pointed out before break, normally 10 to 15 percent turnout. If we're lucky, um, it comes at a time of year where very very few of us are really thinking about politics. Most of us, if at all, thinking about politics. Don't start until what the state fair. You know the state fair. We get to meet the politicians. So so we so a lot's going to happen. And in fact, also as you pointed out, Friday was the start of the prime was the start of the early voting. And I don't know how many people are are at all thinking right now as we're getting ready to go into the Fourth of July weekend. They can already go vote for the primaries, which is what the prelude to the general election. Right. But, but you know, historically, though, the turnout has been 10 to 15 percentage points. Uh, the last time I can really remember, and, and maybe my, my mind is failing me here, I do remember the uh, August, mid-August primary in 2010 when Governor, when then candidate Mark Dayton was running against the uh, DFL endorsed candidate, uh, Speaker Margaret Anderson Kelleher. And, 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 and Matt Atenza. And Matt Atenza. And you, had, and you had at least two of those candidates 
both Dayton and Atenza, who are both millionaires, who pumped a lot of money into the race to try to, um, um, you know, to, to, to hype turnout. I think, if I remember correctly, that was also, wasn't that not the first August primary we had? I think it might have, because they had to move it That's right. in order to, to send out those absentee ballots um, to our troops, which right. is obviously very important. A lot of people think that it should be moved back to June when more people are tuned in. But, uh, you know, on, on all of these sides, I mean, these, you've got these major statewide races. Uh, you've got this Minnesota Attorney General's race that is just blowing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have two critical races in in the, the both the Democratic side and the Republican side for governor for governor and we uh, also and also the fifth district congressional district which essentially represents this is Keith Ellison's seat you know um, and so you've got we could say what arguably at least four at least four major um, primaries um, you know again one of them only people who are in the 5th District are going to vote on, but at least four major primaries to be thinking about. Right. And, and in terms in terms of that, that critical 5th District primary, it, you know, to, to succeed Keith Ellison, I mean, is it fair not to say, is it fair to say whoever wins that is the next congressperson? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it would, somebody had asked me the other day, I was talking to them, and they said, what would it take for a Republican to actually win that seat? And it would take more than the perfect storm. You would have to have a, the Democrats nominate uh, a really far-left candidate um, who then implodes at some point down the line. Some scandal comes out about that person. It would have to be a huge scandal. Enormous scandal. <laughs> Keith Ellison won by – I actually looked this up because I, I, I was talking to him last week. He won by 47 percentage points. Yeah, this is – 47 percentage points. Is It's one of the most Democratic congressional districts in the nation. Yes, I was going to say, this is about as safe as a Democratic seat as you actually can come up with here. So you'd have to have a combination of, of almost a centrist Republican um, who has a lot of money. The Democrat candidate would have to implode, um, or some, something incredibly scandalous would come out at the last minute. I mean, all kinds of things. It's, and it's in the likelihood, even then, um, that the Democrat wouldn't win, I think is pretty, pretty low. So whoever wins this primary pretty much walks into Congress at, the, um, at, this, at this point, which is why it's so important. And also why, in some sense, it's unfortunate because let's say we even get lucky, we get up to 20% turnout in the primary. A person who is going to become the next uh, member of Congress um, from the 5th District does so with only about a 20% turnout um, in that 5th district. And given how many people are running, it's possible that the person who wins that primary wins it with less than a majority. I'll just, I'll just make up a number here and say you might get somebody with 40% of the vote of 20% of the people who are eligible to vote um, in that district, and that's enough to determine who's going to be the next member of Congress. Right. And, and, and potentially, I mean, you know, Congressman Ellison, you know, I mean, because I, I asked him, I, I mean, you, you may disagree with Congressman Keith Ellison, uh, and, and many people do with him politically, but you can't accuse him of playing it safe. I mean, he could have been a congressman for the rest of his life. That's right. Um, yeah. He's in his yeah. mid-50s. You know, he's very healthy, very active, and, and he feels that he can do this. I mean, this is an enormous risk that he's taking. 
Yeah, people generally don't give up seats in the House of Representatives unless they're going to run for the U.S. Senate because they're going to move up. Um, but generally, once a person has it, they're there forever. Before him, it was Martin Sabo, and Martin Sabo was in that seat for probably, I don't know, maybe we could check on this one. I have to think it was like 25, maybe 30 years or something yes. like that. Um, um, I, and uh, and it's it, 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 it's absolutely yours, right? So for him to take this chance and run for the attorney general's office um, is giving up a clear, safe seat um, for himself to take a chance. Now I do want to say that he's probably also the favorite um, for the attorney general's position, but nonetheless, um, there's no guarantee um, that he's going to win that primary. Right, and then and then you got a general election going forward, so it, it is an enormous risk. But but you know, going back to that fifth district seat, you also have you know uh, some some very well known prominent candidates in, in Representative Ilhan Omar, a state representative. You've got former Speaker Margaret Anderson Kelleher, and you've got Senator uh, Patricia Torres Ray. I mean, these are people who are very well known, have extraordinary credentials who are obviously eminently qualified to become a member of Congress, and yet you've got this kind of iffy primary where you're not sure how many people are going to vote. Right. The only thing that I think was even iffier was when they held that, 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 that sort of impromptu convention a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, there, there were problems with that in terms of how many people showed up, how quick it was, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, and we could do a great criticism of that, but you're right. We've got four... Uh, four candidates with very distinguished records, um, very um, strong bases of support, and it's at this point I think um, Omar is probably the favorite since she got the the convention endorsement. the The demographics of that area of that district um, may be favoring somebody like her, but I. St- wouldn't guarantee it because, again, with that maybe 15 to 20 percent turnout, with each of those candidates having bases of support, um, it's going to be old-fashioned name recognition, old-fashioned get out the vote. Uh, it's it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. And again, that the voting has already started. Right, and, and that's and, and let me ask you: we had some clips. Um, uh, that Dave Lee had interviewed Secretary of State Steve Simon, and and you know Steve Simon was saying you know, that this this you know early no excuses voting. He actually wrote the bill, so he's saying it's it's a great success. It's really catching on. Is it catching on? Well, it depends on. I mean, one of the things that we know about early voting, the evidence is still inconclusive regarding whether or not it actually increases voter turnout. There's there's some evidence that it does, but some evidence that also suggests that it merely stretches the voting out. Uh, okay. It, it helps some groups, though. I was going to say, and, and, and you won't be surprised when I tell you this, when I tell you that the one group that is most helped by early voting um, is, is, is moms with kids, working moms with kids. I, you know, I, I think that that sort of, and especially you know, in November when it's terrible weather, you know, could can be terrible weather yeah. here. Um, you know, I think it's just very difficult right. um, to, to get to the polls. Right, and I was going to say, and, and you know this. I mean, for many years, I remember we used to talk about stories about you having to pick up your kids and you know get them to places. Is that on election day, if you're working all day and then you have to go, you know, pick up your kids, you know, take them off to some sporting event or something like that, it's really pretty hard. It know, is hard to get to the voting booth, and so we have evidence that that. You know, that working moms, um, 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 it helps them a lot more. Some evidence that it helps people of color, young people. Um, but again, the evidence is, 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 is so mixed um, in, terms of, um, uh, in terms of that, um, in terms of how it really affects. Now, where it does affect 
uh, I think, is a variety of strategies here because for some candidates who might not be well-known um, starting off the race, um, they, they don't quite... They don't have a, a, an end point, you know, mid-August in which to peak you know, because people are already voting. Um, and once people voted, yes, you can change your vote a week before the election. People forget about that. But usually once people vote, they don't go back and change their vote. Um, and this, again, just changes the strategy for candidates because a lot of candidates will say, I want to get people to vote now, get them, you know, basically get the money in the bank right now, concentrate on other voters, et cetera, et cetera. But it clearly changes campaign strategies, and I think it sometimes hurts lesser-known candidates who don't have quite the same ability to get their message out. All right. We're chatting with Professor David Schultz uh, about this August 14th primary. So much at stake. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to ask Professor Schultz about these two primaries for governor, both on the Republican side and on the DFL side. Uh, Major candidates, uh, a lot at stake. And it's really not clear, perhaps Professor Schultz has a better idea than I do, you know, what the outcome is going to be, especially on the DFL side. So keep it here, folks. More with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It's 849, 850 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with some closing thoughts with Professor David Schultz. Um, your thoughts on let's take the Republican governor's primary uh, with obviously Commissioner Jeff Johnson, the endorsed candidate, and former Governor Tim Pawlenty. Your thoughts? Well, this is interesting because on Friday somebody sent to me um, a Republican poll that was commissioned through um, again through the Republican Party and in. And I think Stuart Mills, who has run for Congress a couple of times, um, was, was involved, in the eighth congressional district. Was involved um, in basically creating an organization um, that's, that's sponsoring somebody's polling. If the polling is correct, um, it suggests that Tim Pawlenty has nearly, um, are in fact, larger than a thirty-point lead over Jeff Johnson going into the primary. Statewide. Statewide, yeah. This was an interesting poll because it was a survey of more than 1,500 people statewide, um, plus or minus 2.7% in terms of margin of error. There's a couple other nerdy things about the poll, which I won't talk about, that made me suggest that it's actually a pretty good poll. But if that poll is accurate, um, Tim Pawlenty has a dramatic and significant lead over Jeff Johnson um, in terms of the primary. Um, and, and, And I would suspect at this point that may be the case, you know, that Tim Pawlenty does have the advantage, um, but the question becomes, of course, getting out the vote and delivering, because the Republican Party is is much more Trump more Trump based than it was uh, much more Trump based um, 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 than it was obviously a few years ago. But I say that because Jeff Johnson has fully embraced Donald Trump. Tim Pawlenty um, is although who got who got the shout out from the president because I was there yeah. in Duluth at that rally and did well, did the shout out go to Jeff Johnson who's an enormous Trump supporter okay. it went to Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach That's right. who is running with Governor Tim Pawlenty and and she got she got the shout out she did get the shout out so I think that this works that shout out. Whatever impact lieutenant governors truly have on races, and it's and it's debatable. But but I would say that certainly doesn't hurt Tim Pawlenty. I put him in the driver's seat. All right, on the DFL side, this one is really difficult to handicap. It is difficult to handicap. 
I think the conventional wisdom right now is saying that the the Swanson ticket um, and, and the Waltz ticket will partially split votes, which then favors the 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 Aaron Murphy um, endorsed candidate, and and that may be how it turns out. I don't know, but I think the bigger issue is going to be um, in terms of. And I've, I've speculated on this. Are we at a point yet in the state of Minnesota where a candidate can run essentially as a as a metro candidate, um, even in the primary for the Democrats, and have that to be enough in terms of of winning an election? And and even though I know Erin Murphy um, is saying that she grew up in a rural area, you know she she's trying to run a statewide campaign. The perception is going to be what she's a metro candidate. Right, and, and her running mate, obviously, Representative Aaron May Quaid from Apple Valley, obviously a metro area candidate as well. Exactly. So, so at this point, I, I would say perhaps the, the advantage goes to her as the endorsed candidate with the other two candidates splitting, but that's still not clear because we have um, Tim Waltz having significantly more money than either Swanson um, or Aaron Murphy, and in many ways... His campaign um, still has, let's say, a, a better ground game, you know, I think across the state than does Aaron Murphy. So if I were picking it at this point, I would say it is very close between, between Waltz and Murphy, and I'm thinking actually Swanson comes in third. But again, this is all speculative. I've right. seen no polling data at this point. Right, and, and it's, it, it's so difficult because, again, it, it comes down to turnout. Right. And, and that's, what's, that's what's so – the uncertainty of it, and you've got these three really powerhouse candidates. You do, and you also have the fact, as we talked about before, the early voting started yesterday. And 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 how that early voting plays out in terms of who shows up, um, and eventually, of course, who shows up by the time we get to the primary day. That's that's the entire race. Right. Okay. Um, uh, the one group of ads that I've really seen, and we only have like a couple minutes left. Uh, Tina Smith has uh, uh, rolled out a number of ads, and they are playing all over the place. Yeah, I was surprised to see them this early, and she needed to... And, and they're basically saying, hi, I'm Tina Smith, this is who I am. Right, and that's important <laughs> because one of the things that the polls were suggesting is that a large percentage of, of Minnesota had no idea who Tina Smith was. Yes, she was lieutenant governor. Yes, she's, you know, yes, you know she was chief of staff, lieutenant governor. Then Now she's a senator. But I saw numbers that suggested over half of Minnesotans had no idea who she was. And so this is a smart first ad just to come out and say, hi, I'm Tina Smith, and this is who I am. Um, and they're kind of the warm and fuzzy ones. Absolutely warm and fuzzy. Not and a just, lot on policy, but just yeah. who I am. No, there's no policy at all. None, none. <laughs> right, you're right. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, um, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. So much going on. We, we've been saying this for a, a couple of years now, I feel. That's right. I feel like it never decelerates. It never, de- it never decelerates. All right, David Schultz, and please, take out, uh, please, please check out his blog, Schultz's Take. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Anytime. Good evening. All right. The one and only David Schultz. And again, please do check out the blog, Schultz's Take. Hey, I want to invite all of you folks to uh, tune into WCCO TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Mike Augustinak and I will be there bright and early at 6 a.m. We actually have one of the AG candidates, uh, DFL AG candidates, Representative Deborah Hillstrom, will be on our 6 a.m. show. And then on our 10.30 a.m. show, we will have Congressman Tom Emmer will be joining us. Uh, I want to talk to him about a, a new bill that he's 
put forward to help farmers with mental health issues. And also Dean Phillips, who is running a strong campaign against Republican Congressman Eric Paulson. Uh, they will both be on uh, Congressman uh, Emmer and uh, Dean Phillips will be on on our 1030 show. Keep it here. News Radio 830 WCCO. Congress would pass something called the Employee Free Choice Act. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 